Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from John 19, starting in verse 16, the second half of verse 16. Listen carefully, pay close attention, because this is the gospel of our God. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, or Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but... He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also a tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day as we meditate on what you have revealed to us. Do a mighty work in us by your spirit and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Before I launch into the sermon, I want to give a quick plug for something that's coming up in the life of our church in, I believe it's five weeks. We are starting, we are beginning a new Sunday school program on Sunday mornings, beginning at 9.30, so an uh, an hour earlier than you're used to getting here. And we'll meet together to study God's Word. And uh, there's going to be classes for all ages. And it's going to be a really good time, I think, for centering our fellowship on the Word of God and biblical fellowship, praying for one another, keeping one another accountable, encouraging one another in our common faith. And I know I haven't uh, 
told the adults much about what we're going to be doing, but what we are going to be doing is going through the catechism for the first year, and then we'll get uh, into books of the Bible and things like that. But the, the high school age group, junior, late junior high, high school ages, they're going to be going through the catechism as well. And I think many of us, prob- many of the members here probably haven't systematically worked through the catechism. Uh, that's what I've gathered. And so I think it'd be good for us to, sp- and, I, and I know some of you are thinking, oh, uh, you know, a catechism, an old, you know, catechism written hundreds of years ago. But if, if you think that, you probably haven't read the Heidelberg Catechism because it's different from most catechisms and being very warm, pastoral, practical, and it uses normal language unlike some others. And, but also, it has a ton of proof texts. The authors used proof texts. They based everything on Scripture, and they listed the proof texts. And what we'll really be focusing on are those verses, those passages from Scripture. And we'll be digging into them to see how they ground the truth in the catechism. And maybe occasionally we might be uh, you know, looking at different views or interpretations, and, and, and it's okay to disagree with the catechism, but it's not okay to disagree with Scripture. And we'll, we'll be talking about those sort of things. So five weeks, it's September 12th at 9.30. Uh, try to think about committing to that if you haven't already. Last week... I read the same passage from John 19, and I read an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Four Loves, that I've only read very recently. I listened to him read it on audio. Um, And that quote was about the love of God on display at the cross. And the end of that quote went like this. God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. He causes us to be parasites that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves, end quote. The cross is a perfect picture of love. There's no better example, no better illustration of God's love, any love, than the crucifixion of God's son. A more recent author, Christian author, put it this way. Love is the Son of God hanging by his arms, his muscles paralyzed and unable to respond. Love is God's Son fighting to raise himself in order to get just one short breath. Love is carbon dioxide mounting in the lungs, cramps partially subsiding, allowing our Lord to push himself spasmodically upward for life-giving oxygen. This is a picture of God's love. Still, it is only suggestive of his deeper love, his willingness to bear our sin and suffer suffer separation from his beloved Father, end quote. When you think about the length and width and height and depth of God's love for you, where, where does your mind go? Does it land at the foot of the cross, looking up at your crucified Lord? You see, God has provided us a concrete expression of his unfathomable love toward us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's important to equate the, the love of God with the cross of Christ, not only because to do so is to understand the nature of Christ's cross, but also because to do so is to understand the nature of your cross. Love is the motivation behind every cross that God hands out. From the cross of the Savior, that unique cross given to Jesus, to the cross of every one of his disciples. God disciplines you. He chastens you. He he puts you through the fire. He gives you your crosses to bear because he deeply loves you and is dedicated to making you a mature son or daughter. We finally come to that hour that John's gospel has been anticipating and pointing us toward all the way from the beginning, explicitly in the second chapter of John's gospel, back at the wedding in Cana when the mother of Jesus pleaded with him to save the day, Jesus said to her, woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, I want to point out something literary in the text that John is doing here. That's the first time we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. Here in John 19 is the second and final time we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. And both this, this is, so in both instances, Jesus addresses her as woman. In both instances, the text uses the word, somebody says the word hour. So he says, my hour is not yet come. And here in John 19, at the end of our passage that we just read, the very last verse talks about the hour which has come. And so it uses woman, it uses hour. Mary's there just as she was at the beginning. And so that's John's way of telling us that the hour of Jesus has come. The hour that God predestined even before he created the world has arrived in history. The hour has come when God will give life to the world by tasting death on our behalf as one of us. The hour has come when God will make known to the world that his son is the king, the priest, and the true son of God. In the death of Jesus, we see who Jesus is. And we see it better than we see it anywhere else. We see his character in all its beauty and richness. No event, no teaching, no saying, no parable, no healing, no deed reveals the heart of God as well as, as profoundly as the cross of Christ does. Not the creation of the world, not the healing of the blind or the lame, not the casting out of evil spirits. Nothing opens up God's heart toward us the way the cross of Christ does. At the cross, we see the king, our king, gloriously sacrificing himself for his subjects. At the cross, we see our high priest sacrificing himself on the altar for God's people. At the cross, we see the Son of God, the eternal 
blameless Son of God taking on the shame of rebellious humanity. That's who our God is. He doesn't do this in spite of being God. He does this because he is God, the God, our God, your God. Our passage is divided up into four scenes. And last week we focused on the first two, and this week we'll look at the last two. Verses 16 to 18 and we looked at those verses last week, so we won't read them and talk much about them this week, but they depict Jesus carrying his crossbeam to the place of his execution. And the name of the spot where he would be crucified is called Golgotha, place of a skull. And we discussed the symbolism of this last week in more detail. Briefly, John is telling us that Jesus is the promised skull crusher. In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, and he promised, this was a promise to, Abraham, uh, to Adam and Eve, that one day a Savior would come to crush the serpent's head, the devil's head. And the serpent will bruise the Savior's heel, God says, but the Savior will deliver a decisive head blow to the serpent. And there's a cosmic and spiritual battle taking place then on Golgotha. As I said last week, Jesus isn't a passive victim at his crucifixion. He's an active warrior, a skull crusher. On the place called the skull, Jesus is fulfilling God's purposes and promises. He's completing God's mission. He's saving God's people. He's destroying the works of the devil. And as we think about the horror of Christ, of Calvary, the horror that Christ experienced during his crucifixion, we mustn't forget that the physical agony which many people underwent, including the two guys on each side of him, is merely a shadow of the unique misery that Jesus endured in his spirit, in his soul, when God's wrath was poured out on him because of our sin. He began to experience this emotional and spiritual torment even during the previous night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he told his disciples? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke writes in a different place, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. A lot of things we could, a lot of sermons right there. When Jesus is squeezed in the vice, out comes prayer, out comes God's word. When he's overwhelmed, he goes to God. Well, after scene one describes the, the place and the procedure of Christ's crucifixion, scene two, which goes from verse 19 to 22, it directs our attention to the title above Jesus' head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And we remembered last week that Jesus wasn't the king even though he was bearing a Roman cross. He is the rightful king precisely because he was willing to take up the cross given to him by the Father. The cross is the throne from which Christ rules. The New Testament consistently connects the reign of Christ to the cross of Christ. Without the cross, there's no 
king. Jesus is who he is by virtue of his obedience to the Father all the way to the point of death on a cross. And a similar principle applies to those of us who follow Jesus, to those of us who say we are disciples of Jesus and say that we're willing to take up our cross. Without your cross, there's no discipleship. Without your cross, you can't can't take dominion or produce any fruit. When you avoid your cross, you are avoiding reigning with Christ. You're avoiding victory and dominion. You're avoiding making a difference. Who doesn't want to make a difference during their seven or eight decades on this earth? Well, your labor is not in vain as long as you're laboring under the joyful burden of the cross that God has given specifically to you. Your, your labor is not in vain as long as you are laboring under the joyful burden of the cross that Jesus has, or that God has, Jesus, has given to you. In the third scene, so now all of that is recap of, of last week, and you can go back and listen for fuller explanation of all those things. So now we enter the third scene. And in this third scene, the soldiers fulfill Scripture by dividing Christ's garments among them. Let's, let's read it again together. Verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now what John is not saying there is that the soldiers knew this scripture and were consciously fulfilling it. Like, so they, they knew Psalm 22 said this, and so they knew that this is what they needed to do. What, what John is saying is, unwittingly, they fulfilled scripture. And so really, it's another instance of God being in control of the situation, orchestrating everything so that his will, his decree, his plan is carried out perfectly, even by those who don't know what they're doing. Now, whereas the second scene directed our eyes above Jesus, the third scene draws our attention below Jesus to the garments on the ground, the garments that had been ripped off of Jesus. Remember that these criminals, these people who were crucified, were crucified naked. And now, why does John go into such detail when describing these garments, and especially the tunic of Jesus. He he not only mentions the tunic, he says it's seamless, and, and he gives details about how it was woven from top to bottom. This demands that something important is being described beyond just historical details. Of course, the details are true, but but something else is going on as well. And this isn't the first time 
that John's gospel has given symbolic significance to clothing. In fact, earlier in this very chapter, earlier in John 19, the soldiers mockingly adorned Jesus with a royal garment, a purple robe, in addition to the crown of thorns. And purple, of course, is a royal color, and so this detail about the purple robe highlights, ironically, the true kingship of Jesus. The soldiers were acting better than they knew when they scornfully confessed Jesus as king. And so now, a little later in the same chapter, in verse 23, John once again gives us details about Jesus' clothing. And these details are laden with symbolic meaning. What, What then is the significance of this seamless tunic? What do you think? If 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 the purple robe signified the, the kingship of Jesus, what do you think the seamless tunic signifies? In the Old Testament, the priestly garments were carefully, are carefully described and they're given a lot of attention because the priesthood was, was a glorious and honorable institution. Ezekiel 28, 2 God tells Moses, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. That's the high priest, Aaron, for glory and for beauty. And we know from the first century historian Josephus that the Jewish high priest wore a seamless tunic. Josephus describes it this way. Josephus was given access to to a lot of things, including things related to the temple. And he wrote about them. And here's what he says about the priest. He says, now this vesture, so this this tunic, was not composed of two pieces, nor was it sewed together upon the shoulders and the sides, but it was one long vestment, so woven, same word John uses, so woven as to have an aperture hole for the neck. End quote. So Josephus' word, Woven is the same word John uses in verse 23. And this very same word, woven, is used on my count 13 times in the Greek Old Testament. Unless I missed some. And each time it describes priestly garments. So when John uses the word woven, he wants us to think about the tunic of the Old Testament priest. Now, if you, were, if you were an informed Jew living in the first century, you would have known that the priests wore a special tunic that was seamless, made up of one piece woven together from top to bottom. So, so you, you would know what's going on here. So what, what do you think is going on? What is John telling us in verse 23 when he says, Now the tunic of Jesus was with, without seam, woven from the top in one piece. He's telling us who the true priest is. Jesus wore the purple robe because he's the true king of heaven and earth. Now he wears a seamless tunic because he's the true priest. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is priest of God, most high. Like Melchizedek, Melchizedek, he is a priest king. 
Jesus is true priest because unlike every priest who came before him, he also is the true sacrifice. He is the priest who offers the sacrifice of himself. So so the symbolism of the seamless tunic lying on the ground below the cross is clear. As God's priest, Jesus offers the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world. And as God's lamb, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the world. So the crucified king has fulfilled and even superseded the role of the Passover lamb and the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. He's the greater Melchizedek, the greater priest king, the greater sacrifice. Everything that was expected of the high priest, intercessory prayer, sacrifice, you know, the atonement for sins, reconciliation, cleansing, forgiveness, all of that has now been accomplished through Jesus and his cross. So when you come to Jesus, you come to him as your high priest, your priest king, who, as Hebrew 8 says, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The crucified king is also the sacrificed priest. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 15. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I wonder how many of you are so burdened, so weighed down, so anxious, so overwhelmed, so distracted by life, by sin, by pain, by disappointments, so overwhelmed by your difficult circumstances that you're having a hard time really appreciating what it means that the cosmic king and heavenly high priest, who is also your God, died on a Roman cross to save you forever from sin and death and the punishment you deserve. If that's you today, that I, I want you to take a step back from what's right in front of you, from what's weighing you down. I want, I want to help you, all of us, regroup, refocus, and look afresh at the truth that John is helping us see in this very text. I want to help us see it with new eyes, fresh eyes. And the best way I know to do this, if you'll just be patient with me, is to read the next three verses and then consider what those three verses tell us about the heart of Christ for his people 
even as he hangs on the cross. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four four women. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus was burdened and weighed down by life, by sin, not his, but ours, by pain, by disappointments. As he hung on the cross, he was being crushed by your sin and God's wrath, my sin, God's wrath for that sin. There have never been any more difficult circumstances. And yet, at the height of his grief, Jesus provides for his grieving disciples, specifically his grieving mother. While hanging on a cross, he mercifully remembers the desolate condition of his, his mother and the, and the, the crushing effect of, of the sorrowful sight that she is seeing. Even while enduring the dreadful agonies of body and soul, agony that no other person has ever experienced, the heart of Christ was turned toward those he loved. While suffering, he comforted his suffering disciples. If you're overwhelmed by difficulties, consider how tender and thoughtful Jesus is toward you in your afflictions, in your pain. In your grief, in your burdened, weighed down life, take comfort that that you have in Jesus a Savior of unrivaled affection a savior of unrivaled sympathy, a a savior of unrivaled gentleness, a savior of unrivaled concern for you and what's going on, an unrivaled concern for your pain, your loss, your unhappy condition. In your pain, he doesn't turn to you and say, come on, suck it up. Look what I had to endure. No, he meets you where you are. And here's the good news. The heart that Jesus had for Mary, even on the cross, is a heart that never changes. Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us, is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. This is the heart he has For all of his people, all of those who believe in him. Jesus said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. 
no less than Mary. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to his family. You're his brother or sister or mother. The heart of Christ toward you is the same as his heart toward Mary. Do you believe that? So Jesus, Jesus knows about your work woes. He knows how hard it is for you to be a tender father. He knows how overwhelmed you are as a mother of little ones. Or maybe a mother of big ones. He knows your condition. He knows your pain. He knows your anxiety about the future. He knows your disappointments about the past. He knows what you face this week. He never forgets any who love him and do his will. So even in your worst condition, Jesus remembers your need. He doesn't remember your sin. I was going to say that even before Bobby said what he said in our uh, pardon of sin. He reminded us that God doesn't remember our sin, and I had that written in my notes, and we didn't talk about that. He doesn't remember your sin. He remembers your need, and he gives you what you need in the time of need. And so cling to that promise in James chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses because of this little phrase in it. James 1 verse 5, which says that God gives generously without finding fault or without reproach. He gives generously. He doesn't, you don't ask for something says, oh, what about that, that sin? He gives generously without finding fault to those who are in Christ. No wonder Peter writes, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. No wonder the psalmist sings, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. No wonder the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. There he covers all three of our themes, King priest and son he's ascended to god's right hand as a king he's the high priest in the heavenly temple tabernacle and he is the son of god let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin let us then approach god's throne his throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need. Jesus is our king, priest, and God's son so that he can help us in our time of need. In verses 25 and 26, John mentions Five people standing before the cross. The first person is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Second is Mary's sister, who in Mark 15 is called Salome. Almost certainly the same person. I don't think there's much doubt in my mind. Third is Mary, the wife of Clopas. And fourth, Mary Magdalene. And fifth, 
those are the women. Fifth, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which again, almost certainly is John. I think John is wanting us to know that it's him. So there are three Marys total. But what's even more interesting is that four of these five are, again, almost certainly, I would say about as certain as you can can get, they're almost certainly family members of Jesus. Mary Magdalene is the only non-family member. Now, let's go through. It's obvious that Mary and Mary's sister are family members, Mary's the mother of our Lord, and her sister Salome is his aunt. But what about the others? Well, Mary's sister Salome was the mother of James and John. We know that Salome was, was uh, the other woman that was there who's named Salome. We know that she was the mother of James and John. She was at the foot of the cross. And this means that John, the beloved disciple, was Jesus' first cousin. What about Mary, the wife of Clopas? Well, thankfully, we know a lot about Clopas and Mary because their children were leaders in the Jerusalem church all the way into the second century. And what the early church writers and historians tell us is that Clopas was Joseph's brother. So Joseph, the husband of Mary, was Clopas's brother. In other words, Joseph and Clopas, brothers, each married a woman named Mary. So what this means is that at the foot of the cross is Jesus' mother, his aunt Salome, Mary's sister, his cousin John, Salome's son, and his aunt Mary, who was the wife of Joseph's brother Clopas. So standing before the cross is the family of Jesus, his mother, two aunts, and a cousin, and then one of the most, his most intimate disciples, Mary Magdalene. It's fitting then that in verses 25 to 27, Jesus speaks in familial terms. He uses the language of the family, specifically of a mother and a son. In using this familial language, Jesus establishes his disciples as the newly created family of God. They are the children of God, as John 1.12 puts it. On the cross, Jesus is creating a new household. In Galatians 6.10, Paul calls it, calls it the household of faith. The cross unites the eternal Son of God with all of us who in Him are sons of God, who have been made sons of God, who have become God's children. That's why John exhorts us, his readers, in chapter 20, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
It's through faith in the Son of God that we, the sons of God, the children of God, are given life. It's through God's Son that we are given complete access to His Father and the family of God, the church. Because of of our common faith in the crucified king and the sacrificed high priest, we call one another brothers and sisters. God calls us to live together as a family, as brothers and sisters of one another, and Hebrews tells us brothers and sisters of Jesus, the eternal son. He's our big brother. Your life source is not grounded in your bloodline family. It's not grounded in the will of the flesh or the will of man. No, you were born into the family of God by God himself. Your new birth into the household of faith was from above. And now with Jesus, you may address... God as your Father. The hour or climax of the ministry of Christ has arrived. The cross is where the person and work of Jesus is visualized, explained, and proclaimed. At the cross, God reveals that Jesus is true king, true high priest, and true son. He's the crucified king, sacrificed high priest, and the siring son, the son who gives birth to other sons. And it all happens at the cross. Jesus is shown to be who he really is at the cross, not in spite of the cross. At the cross, the title, the tunic, and the family of Jesus all declare that he is the priest, king, and son. So rather than making God in your own image, embrace the one who is the radiance of God's glory and the express image of his nature. Embrace the one who revealed God's glory, the one who revealed what true glory is, by dying for you on a Roman cross. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us in Christ, a love that was expressed on the cross, a love that sent the eternal Son to earth to take up that cross. Help us this week both to take comfort in our tender Savior's care for us and to be willing and ready to take up the cross that you have given to us. We need your help. We need your spirit to work this in us. And we ask for it in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.